We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7, 1, verse 1 to 8, 10 today. And um, it's an interesting book, Isaiah. I've had a few discussions with Raf and a few others that uh, we trust that you're enjoying it because uh, Isaiah is not the sort of uh, book, I guess, that gets preached about a lot through, I think, the churches, but I think uh, it's great that we've been able to take it on uh, because there is a lot to learn from it and uh, there are a lot of important lessons for us. And there are three important lessons that we can take from these verses this morning. Um, the first one is, as you read up, as you see up there, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. You know, we can get caught up in the vicissitudes of life that we get tossed around by the, by the, uh, by the waves, like around by the waves of the ocean, not knowing who or where to turn to. We can assess the situation and sometimes we look for the best help and occasionally we may sink further into the problems that we face. Oh no, it's not working. Second is having faith in the right God. When we are faced with a crisis or when we have to make a tough decision in life, who is it that we align ourselves with? Apart from faith in God, the people have no future. And thirdly, if we believe that God is sovereign, then we need to trust in him. Let me just recap on the scene of these verses. The time is around 742 to 728 BC. It's the time when Israel was a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim. The southern kingdom was Judah. It was during this time that Ahaz, the son of Jotham, is the king of Judah. Ahaz was a bad king because of his idolatry. He worshipped other gods and not the true God of his forefathers. Now you can read through First and Second Kings and it will give you a rundown of all the good and the bad kings that led Israel and Judah. The bad kings were those who refused the warnings of the prophet to turn from their evil ways. They refused to observe the instructions and decrees the Lord had commanded their forefathers. Now, King Rezin is the king of Aram. I've got a map up there so you can have a bit of a look and see how it sort of uh, looks at the time. King Rezin is the king of Aram, sometimes referred to as Syria. And Pekah, who is the son of Remaliah, is the king of Israel. That was the northern kingdom. For the sin of Ahaz, God allows these two kings to invade the kingdom. The threat of these two kings shakes the hearts of the people of Judah. Now, during the time of Jotham, this is Ahaz's father, 
Isaiah was silent. But now, in the midst of crisis, Isaiah comes onto the scene. Firstly, to uphold God, and as it seems, to warn and help help out Ahaz. God sends Isaiah to encourage Ahaz, and he tells him that Rezin and Pekah are no real threat. God is telling him, there is no need to worry, trust in me. Hudson Taylor, <laughs> it's a bit of a funny one, that one, isn't it? I just had to use it, it was good. <laughs> Hudson Taylor, missionary to China and founder of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, gave this excellent advice. He said, let us give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, all right into God's hands. And then when we have given all over to him, there will be nothing for us to be troubled about. What a sobering thought. You know, worry can cloud our vision. When we worry, precious time is wasted and energy is drained. A whole afternoon fretting about finances is not going to improve them. Spending the whole evening agonising over an unresolved conflict is not going to bring about a resolution. Instead of turning to God in prayer, worry tends to make us take matters into our own hands. Worry tends to pull us away from God. We start to trust him less. Maybe at this time we can think of the prayer from St Francis of Assisi where he says, help me to change the things I can but accept the things I can't. So we can make a choice to turn to God knowing that he is sovereign. This helps us to be calm instead of our thoughts spinning out of control. And you see, nothing escapes God. You can be rest, you can rest assured that He is far more concerned about our well-being than we are ourselves. And as, as we've mentioned and looked at today, He loves us more than what we can fathom. Sure, things are going to happen. But even when they do, as children of God, we can hold onto the truth that God is with us. We are not alone. God wants Ahaz to trust him, so much so that he tells Ahaz, ask me for any sign, no matter how extreme, and I will give it to you. God is saying to Ahaz, put your trust in me. But Ahaz doesn't choose well. Ahaz puts his trust in the king of Assyria, which at the time was Tiglath-Pileser III. Now he claims that he will not put the 
put God to the test, which was noble, but from someone who had a faithless heart, it was hardly worth recognising. So here is the king of Judah, the one who's supposed to be the safeguard of the Lord's temple and upholding the Lord God himself. And all he had to do was pray and trust in God. You know, the sad thing is that I wonder if I would have done the same thing. You know, you see, to some extent I can understand why King Ahaz would side with the king of Assyria for security and protection. It was tangible. It was instant. He could see the armies. They were visible. But the life of faith is the life of the word. Jesus says, believe in me, Remain in me, trust in me. You know, when we put God, when we put aside God's word, things start to come undone. Things don't go so well. Well, Ahaz does pray, but he prays to the wrong God. He puts his trust in the king of Assyria, instead of the God of Israel. Ahaz refuses to listen and doesn't want to allow God's word to be influenced by his judgment. All unbelief is a rejection of God. What would God say to us if we're tempted to waver? The challenge of these verses is not only for the people of Isaiah's time, but for us now and the church today. What will we do with the word of God's promise? Are we really people of the book? Do we really trust everything that is written in the word and uphold it? Isaiah's meeting with Ahaz is significant. Isaiah's son, Shia Jashab, is a living warning or sign that a remnant will survive. In fact, that's what Jashub means. And you'll hear more of that as we move on to the next verses of, uh, in the next chapters of Isaiah. And the direction from Isaiah to keep calm and don't be afraid is the first of a long series of appeals for the people to trust in their God. And in this instance, God is saying, trust in me, Aram and Israel are only two smouldering sticks and pretty soon they're going to be snuffed out. In fact, Aram was crushed in 732 BC, Israel losing the northern territories two years later and ten years later her national identity was almost not existent. In fact, through a series of repopulation, it says there that within 65 years they will be too shattered to be a people. So where does your allegiance lie? It was clear that Ahaz had already made up his mind. Faith played no part in his belief or his politics. 
Note how Isaiah refers to God as your God in verse 11, which included Ahaz. But later, it's my God in verse 13, recognising that Ahaz's allegiance was not with the God of Israel. Now, God is gracious to give Ahaz a sign. This is a twofold sign. Isaiah's son, Mayashalel Hashbaz, becomes the short-term prophecy for the immediate future of the people of Judah. And Emmanuel, the long-term prediction of Jesus and the good news for all mankind. Now, if you remember that Andrew did speak about the long-term and short-term prophecies that are portrayed in Isaiah. And this is common throughout. So in the short term, God uses the very instrument that Ahaz puts his trust in, the king of Assyria, to bring judgment on the people of Judah. Chapter 7, verses 18 to 25, deal with the immediate invasion and aftermath of his choice. God will whistle for fleas and bees, may refer to swarms of looting soldiers, these coming from the lands of Assyria and Egypt. You can just imagine filling the lands, coming over the hills, etc. The king of Assyria, tiglath Pileser, is referred to as the razor hired. There was no escape. Such forcible shaving of head, legs and beard was considered a great insult. In short, Judah will be impoverished, surviving only on curds and honey. From its rich vineyards and cultivated fields, it will become a wasteland of briars and thorns, where cattle roam and sheep run. And we, Raf spoke about the, uh, the, the vineyards and the cultivated fields, which were going to be devastated. Now, I don't know about farm animals too much, but I would say that if cows are roaming, they're probably looking for feed. And if sheep run, I would say that they're frightened. It's like God is saying to Ahaz, you want Assyria, you can have her with all her might. What a terrible picture of devastation. Judah's life is hanging by a thread. You know, when we hang by a thread, we're close to death. This is because when we reject God's word, hope dies. And apart from faith in God and his word, his people have no future. Now, chapter 7 and verse 14 is a very important verse. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is also a short-term and long-term prophecy. The commentary suggests that the word virgin can refer to a young woman betrothed to be married, which may also refer to the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 3 as the short-term prophecy. Here the name of Isaiah's second son, Mayashalel Hashbaz, means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, to indicate the speedy removal of Aram and Israel 
who are the enemies of Judah by the Assyrians. And this would take place before the child could even say, my mother or my father. And if you remember earlier on, I said within two years, these countries would be overtaken. But God had a sign for a far wider audience than for Ahaz and his own people. The long-term prophecy is a type of foreshadowing of the Virgin Mary in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, which is often quoted at Christmas time, where Jesus is the fulfilment of this prophecy, for he is God with us in the fullest sense. In chapter 8, verses 5 to 10, we see God's gentle flow against a serious torrent. The people have rejected the Lord and his promises to David, symbolised by the gentle waters of Shiloh. Verse 6, God allows the floodwaters of the Euphrates, the Assyrians, to overflow its channels and run over its banks. But the swirling of the floodwaters only reach to the neck. God sets the limits of Assyria's might. In fact, Sennacherib's invasion in 701 BC overwhelmed all the cities of Judah except for Jerusalem. The figure, the figure changes to a powerful bird of prey, an indication of God's overriding protection for his people. And while all seemed lost, God is with us. You know, only God's plans and purposes will last. You know, these final and defined verses are the prophet's response to the meaning of Emmanuel, God is with us. And the Lord's insistent that the people should reshape their thinking. What does it mean for us today? As a nation, we may be tempted for, to put our security in military might. We may also be tempted to align ourselves with nations who have that might. As a church, we may be tempted to put our faith in human leaders or the latest trend that help us increase numbers in the church. But you know what? God will build his church and he doesn't need any marketing gimmicks to do it. In fact, he doesn't need us at all. But our participation in his kingdom building is prayer, faithfulness and trusting in him and abiding him in him and his word. Now you might ask, well, how does abiding in God's word and his uh, and, he, and sorry, abiding in God and his word help us in building his kingdom? Well, each of us as individuals are being changed by the renewing of our mind. The more we read God's word, the more we are challenged. The more we are challenged, the more we will change prayerfully and through the Holy Spirit. 
You know, Desi and I were in Europe a few years ago and we visited many churches and cathedrals. We found a lot of them had guidebooks, pictures, postcards of the actual particular church that we visited, but very rarely did we see a Bible in there. We saw impressive architecture, magnificent sculptures and beautiful stained glass windows. All seemed of a bygone era. And as wonderful as these things were, one question remained, which was also given by Jesus. Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? Isaiah 7 and 8 carry a warning to us all that if we have no faith in God and his word, we have no future. I always got to finish on a positive note. But we have a future. Although Judah was destroyed, a remnant remained. God always keeps the freedom of his love alive. And we have Emmanuel himself, standing for those that God is with us. We are children of the sovereign Lord. The one who is high and lifted up. The one who is holy, holy, holy. He is the one who controls all the nations of the world. And even though he is the great king over all, he is God with us. Not just near, but for us and with us. What a great comfort we can take away with that. So we can, folk, be firm in our faith to go and make disciples of all nations and as Jesus said, surely he will be with us always to the very end of the age. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are God with us this morning. You are the true and mighty God who protects and encourages. You are the sovereign Lord who reigns over all the nations of the world. So, Father, we pray for strength and protection that you will help us to be confident in believing and trusting in you. Help us to be bold in our speaking your truth with the people that we meet and come in contact with. And we pray that you you would help us always to stand firm in our faith. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.